Father God in heaven. How secure that we feel knowing that you never let go of us. How protected we feel knowing that when we are in the grip of your grace, uh, your grip is tight and we are sheltered and sealed and guarded. Uh, No matter what, no matter what, And to know that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love, neither height nor depth, nor life nor death. Nothing can separate us from your love because of Jesus. Truly, this makes us the richest people. Thank you for letting us gather again. And now, feed us. Our souls are starving for your word. Help me get out of the way so that what you want said gets said. Father God, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things written in your word. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the president said that it made him angry. Comedian Stephen Colbert wanted to lead a pitchfork-wielding mob after them. One senator said they should fall on their swords. Another representative said that the company's initials now stand for arrogance, incompetence, and greed. AIG. The company that recently paid out $165 million worth of bonus money, uh, even though it has to date received over $170 billion in government bailout money. And people are mad, and the government's mad, and Congress is mad, and we're not going to take it anymore. And it's a scandal, and we want our money back. We want judgment. Judgment. You know, sometimes judgment is a good word when you think about it. Sometimes it is a good word. Now, you know, it's not good if we're thinking about it in terms of acting superior to other people or holier than thou or anything like that. But, but, but judgment is good when, when it talks about someone who is in charge, who makes a decision to make things right. That's good judgment. That's good. Someone in charge making a decision to make things right, to right a wrong. That's, that's good judgment. It is. On April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh committed an act of terrorism which killed 168 people in Oklahoma City. And he was judged for that. He was judged for that. And that was a good judgment. A good judgment. Someone in charge made a decision to right a wrong. And six years later, 
uh, he was executed. And that was a good judgment, righting a wrong. See, judgment's a good word when you think of it that way. If your child uh, had a bully at school and every day that, that bully hammered and ridiculed your child and made fun of your child, what would you want? Judgment. You would want judgment. You'd march right into that principal's office, the person in charge, and you'd want the person in charge to make a decision to make things right, to make it right. That's judgment. For some of you, that bully was at home, and you had a scorpion-like parent who inflicted stinging words and perhaps even physical abuse on you, uh, your mother, your siblings, And you pray, God, do you not see this? Will you not do something about this? What's that a prayer for? What is that a prayer? It is a prayer about judgment. God, make a decision and do something to make it right. So so judgment's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. I've been encouraged by a book lately, uh, a guy by the name of Tom Wright, who has written a book about the resurrection of Christ and the second coming called Surprised by Hope. And he talks about this very thing. He says, throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes his people to shout for joy in the trees of the field, to clap their hands. Then he says this. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is, best, is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. It's a good word. It's a good word. Judgment, what God does when he makes a decision to make things right. Now, I mention all this because that's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to this last book in the Bible, the New Testament. God making the decision to make things right a message that was so very encouraging and meant to challenge and coach Christians in the first century. Just go back to Revelation chapter 1 on page 867 of your church Bibles. And and these Christians were abused physically and and, and it was going to get worse. They were cast out socially. And in the midst of their persecution, they had to wonder, is this really worth it? God, are you going to do something? Are you going to make this right? And the Apostle John, by now in his mid-80s, so it's about, you know, A.D. 95. It's near the end of the first century. The Apostle John receives this prophecy, this vision to encourage God's people. And what we've been learning in Revelation is that, you know, the book of Revelation, we don't read it like an egg timer, you know, ready to tick down and go off, and then, okay, Armageddon's going to come. Instead, what, what, what we're learning here as we read through this book is that it, this is like a graphic, image-driven, visual prophecy meant to coach and challenge God's people 
They're being challenged. Don't quit. You know, John is like a cut man with a, by a fighter in the corner. Don't quit. You know, endure. Jesus Christ endured. You endured. Jesus is making things right. He is rendering judgment. And that was the very message, the very message that the original churches who received this prophecy, that's what they were hearing in, in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, those seven churches in western Turkey. God is making things right. He is in control. Things are not out of hand. You keep persevering. You keep trusting. God's, God is a good God. He, he's rendering judgment. He's making things right. Revelation 1 through 3. And then in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, John was allowed to enter this great throne room scene in heaven. There's magnificent worship going on. Angels everywhere. What's happening? They're worshiping God because he's a good God who is making a decision to make things right. His judgment is real. And he's active. And things aren't out of control. And John sees Jesus, the the slain lamb standing. Take the scroll from the right hand of God the Father. That scroll, that last will and testament of God the Father. And no one but Jesus is qualified to be the executor of that will. No one but Christ. And that, that scroll is sealed with seven wax seals, okay? And Jesus opens each of these wax seals, and every time he opens a seal, there's there's a combination, there's scenes of punishment and scenes of protection. God punishes his enemies. He's making things right, and it's intense, and it's climactic. At the end of chapter 6, God's enemies cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, and hide us from God the Father. We'd rather be buried by the mountains than than to face the unshielded wrath of God. God's making things right. He, and then in chapter 7, there's like, a, there's like a breather. You know? God's people gathered from every tribe and nation and language. They're protected and marked and sealed and secured and they're giving glory to God forever. Why? Because God is making things right. That's why. God's at work. God is at work. He's, and, and chapter 7 concludes, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And then we come to our verses for today in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 on page 871. Jesus opens the seventh seal, and it says in 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. They didn't have quartz watches back then, so it was about a half hour. About a half hour. What's that all about? Well, a half hour, that half half hour time, it's the shortest time period in the book of Revelation. And the idea there is that there is this hushed anticipation. What's God going to do next? What's going to happen next? There's this this hush. What's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? The angels don't know what's going to happen. Only God knows what's going to happen next. See? What's going to happen? And after that half hour period, just, you know, just, there's just a kind of a little letdown. It's like, okay. And then verse 2 ramps back up. 
And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven trumpets given to seven angels. What's that all about? Well, we were just talking about seals there for a minute, these wax seals. Now we're moving to trumpets. What, what, is, what is that all about? Huh? Well, do you remember in camp, uh, you know, in summer camp, you'd, you'd, you'd sometimes chant a song, you know, either in the, the dorm room or around the campfire, you'd, you'd chant a song that kind of went something like this. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder. Well, yeah, we, we, well, we said a little bit worse. <laughs> and we did it in Oklahoma, okay? That's it. That's, that's how hillbillies from Oklahoma say it. Uh, same song, the second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse, all right? That's what we see happening in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. It's as if the Apostle John, he, he is explaining these images of, of punishment and protection and the final coming of Christ. He uses this image, this word picture of, of seals on the scroll. And then he, and at the conclusion of it, he says, okay, did you get that? Did, you, did you, everybody get that? And, and everybody says, yeah, we got it. And then John says, okay, well, let's go over it again. <laughs> okay. Just to make sure we get it. Only this time he doesn't use the images of seals on a scroll. He uses the images of trumpets. Trumpets. Because trumpets were used to call people to worship. Trumpets were used to sound a battle cry. All right? Trumpets were used when God's people had circled Jericho uh, when they entered the promised land and then the trumpets sounded and the walls fell. It's images of trumpets. And then, and then later on, then when the Apostle John is done describing trumpets, then, you know, it's, it's like he says to his readers, okay, just to make sure we get it one more time, let's use another image. And he uses the image of bowls. Bowls, which were part of the Hebrew worship in the temple. So, so he goes over the same material a third time. So we, we see cycles here. That's what we're talking about. Three sets of sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, seals and trumpets, and, and with each cycle, the action becomes more intense. And I, I like uh, how Ben Witherington put it. Uh, he said, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and seven bowls describe the same reality, but with some variation. So, so, I don't think we're talking about these trumpets showing up chronologically after the seals and then, then the bowls showing up after the trumpets. I think, and this is an important interpretation point in Revelation, and, and there's a lot of debate over it. What I see happening here are the seals and the trumpets and the bowls describing the same reality but with some variation, there's intensity with each cycle. It's like, a, it's like a mother in labor pains. It's the same baby, but the longer the time goes, there's getting more and more intense. And so in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, John shows us trumpets, trumpets. And, and so in the remaining time, I just want to ask three questions about the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. Question number one is this. What do the trumpets stand for? 
What do the trumpets stand for? And so we'll, we'll just, we'll, and we're just going to swiftly walk through these verses to talk about each of these trumpets. But then I want to talk about the second question. This is, I think this is really where it hits us today, and that's that what, what caused the angels to sound the trumpets? What caused those angels to sound the trumpets? We're going to answer that question. And then thirdly, what happened after the trumpets were sounded, okay? What did the trumpets stand for? What caused the angels to sound the trumpets? And then what happened after the trumpets were sounded? Question one, what do they stand for? Simply, the trumpets represent what God does to punish his enemies. (laughs) In a rebellious world of injustice, God, a good God, takes care of business. He's making a decision to make things right. Now, when you look at the first four trumpets here in Revelation chapter 8, like the first four seals in chapter 6, we should really see the first four as a group. And the first four trumpets deal with cataclysmic judgments on the earth itself. Look at verse 7. The first trumpet sounds and it says there's hail and fire and blood. And look at that fraction. A third of the earth was incinerated. A third of all trees. All the green grass was gone. There's no mowing at all, which is not in itself a bad thing. But a third, notice this fraction is more than what the fraction was with the seals, where we go from one quarter to then one third. You see, it's getting intense. It's getting more and more intense. Hail, fire, blood. Trumpet number two. With the sec- when, when that trumpet sounded, it was like there was this mountain blew up. Now, in John's day, in John's day, this would have reminded his readers of this cataclysmic event that happened in A.D. 79 when Mount Vesuvius exploded and Pompeii was destroyed. And ships were destroyed in that, uh, in that catastrophe. The economy was affected. Uh, uh, it says that um, ships were destroyed. You see that? Ships were destroyed. And uh, Rome was a sea-based economy. So naturally, that would affect. Trumpet number three in verse 10 talks about a great star that fell from heaven called Wormwood, and it affected and poisoned the drinking water, and bitter water. Many people died. And then in verse 12, the fourth trumpet affected a third of all light and sun and moon. Now you say, what's going on here? What's, what's happening here? Well, someone once said that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is not CNN or contemporary events. The key to understanding the book of Revelation is you need a working knowledge of the Old Testament and you need a working knowledge of a little bit about Roman history. Because you see, John's audience would have seen these images. His audience was a Hebrew audience. John was Jewish. And so these first four trumpet visions are unmistakably familiar and connected to the plagues against Egypt, which God brought against Pharaoh. And what was the point of those plagues? What was the point of those plagues? Why did God afflict Pharaoh with the plagues in the book of Exodus? Was it not to show Pharaoh that God is God and Pharaoh is not? So see, God is using these idols that Pharaoh worshipped to punish him. And he does the same thing today. He does the same thing today. We pursue idols instead of the one true God. And whatever it is we put in front of God, then God takes that and then it turns against us. We invest our souls in that which betrays us. And the question is, will we learn? Will we learn? 
Well, if you thought those first four trumpets were bad enough, check out the talking bird in verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle. Now, um, that word could also be translated vulture um, or raptor. Huh? In other words, it's a bird of prey. It's a predator. And it's the kind of bird that, that makes a meal out of a carcass. And it's a talking bird. And the bird is flying in midair, calls out in a loud voice, whoa, whoa, whoa to the inhabitants of the earth. Literally, earth dwellers. And that word means unbelievers. He's talking to the unbelievers. Whoa. To, in, in heaven, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. But this is just kind of the opposite of that. Whoa, whoa, whoa to the unbelievers. See, God's trying to get our attention wants us to repent. And it's, it's a threefold woe for emphasis, for emphasis. You, you know, it's as if, it's as if that eagle is saying, you have no idea how bad it's going to get if you keep turning away from God. For those who are addicted to their idols, those idols are going to eat you alive. And in fact, that's what we see with the remaining trumpets. The, the last three trumpets are referred to as woes that's how bad it is look at the fifth trumpet there in verse one the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and i saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss it's not too difficult to figure out who that is that's satan look at verse 11 they had as king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in hebrew is abaddon or abaddon excuse me and in greek apollyon and you see what Satan does in verses 2 through 10? He unleashes this, this demonic swarm of locusts on his own followers. Now, it's just, this is just bizarre, but remember, a locust was one of the plagues. So John's taking us back to this, this terrible event. And, and did you notice, look in verses 7 and 8. Do you notice how deceptively beautiful evil is depicted? The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, all right? That's, that's just it's this, this beautiful picture, crown of gold, face like a human face, hair beautiful like, but then look, teeth were like lion's teeth, you see? Deceptively beautiful. Is that, see, this is, this is why... This is, why, um, this is why we've learned. This is why we learn that you never find in sin what you go in sin to find. Sin is always deceptively beautiful. And then the sixth trumpet sounds, and oh my goodness, these, you not only have this, this demonic swarm of locusts, and then you have these demonic war horses. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says that these demonic war horses are unleashed from the Euphrates River. Why the Euphrates River? Take a look at this map. And that little circled section there in the uh, lower right-hand corner, that's kind of where the Euphrates River is, which served as the eastern border of the Roman Empire adjacent to the Parthian Empire. And the Parthians were Rome's archenemies. And so that Euphrates River kind of served as the boundary between safety and uncertainty, between peace and war. And verse 16 says that this, this 
army of 200 million demonic war horses invade. Why, why 200 million? Well, again, let's go back to John's world. We've got to go back to John's world if this is going to make any sense to us. In John's world, at the end of the first century, the Roman Empire was somewhere between 50 to 60 million, all right? Now, think of that image. An army three times the size, not of Rome's army, but of Rome's entire population. Who could survive? Who could survive this, this nastiness which is further described in verses 17 to 19. It's just ugly. Who could survive? Who's going to survive this, huh? You know who's going to survive this? The Christians. The Christians. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Revelation chapter 9, verse 4 says that the demonic locusts afflicted only those who did not have the mark of God on them. But God's people go untouched. They go on. See, Jesus, isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, they will, this is such a beautiful verse, they will put some of you to death, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. Only someone who can come back from the dead can say that. And God's people are protected just like they were protected in the fifth seal. And chapter 9, verse 6 is fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, whereas the Apostle Paul, a believer, would say that to live is Christ and to die is gain, the enemies of God, they want to die, but they can't. Death outruns them. Death outruns them. See, See if you really believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain, if you, if you really believe Jesus when he said in Revelation 1:18, I died, but I am alive forever. If you really believe that this life is not all there is, but there is another life, See, then you can have hope, and you can be protected and secure, but only Jesus can give us that. Do you have him? Do you? If you do, you see, if you do, then, then, I mean, what can this world do to you, really? Is it possible that God is using these uncertain times to call us back to him? Is it? I mean, think about our country. Think about how wealthy our country is and and how we live in a culture that idolizes possessions and stuff. And we have learned here in the past year that it's really a house of cards. It really is. When you put your hope in stuff, in possessions, in money, it's a house of cards. And God's God teaches his people that when we pursue an idol instead of him, that idol turns on us. And so the greatest witness that we can offer to our world right now in these uncertain times, the greatest witness that you can offer to your neighbors, to your family, is your refusal to bow before the altar of anxiety. I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't God's people show backbone while the world limps on in fear? I mean, doesn't our great God deserve Credit? These trumpets represent what God does to punish his enemies who deserve it. God God never punishes someone who doesn't deserve it. In a rebellious world of injustice, a good God takes care of business. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And that's the answer to question number one. What are the trumpets? 
But here's where I'm encouraged by these verses, and I hope you are too. I'm encouraged by by the second question. What brings all this on? What is it that sounds these trumpets? And the answer is in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 and 5. The answer is prayer. Prayer. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And then that's when the action started. There came peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Prayer, church, is what sounds the trumpets of God. Did you know that over the past 2,000 years, millions and millions of prayers have been gathering? Prayers like, how long, O Lord? Prayers like, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And did you know that God has not ignored one of those prayers? He's not overlooked one of them. They're they're neither futile nor forgotten. I mean, think about it. If human beings, mere mortals, can take a microchip and, 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 and make it able to hold gigabytes of information please be rest assured that our God has no problem preserving on his altar every prayer that's ever been prayed in Jesus' name. And those prayers gather before the throne of God, and then God gives his angel the word, and the angel fills the censer from the fire from the altar where the prayers have been blazing, and then those prayers get poured out all over the world. You know, some of us wonder, is there anything I can do? God, is there anything I can do to help right the wrongs in this world? And the answer is yes. Think about it. Think what's going on here. Think what we're learning. The praises of angels give way to silence so that your prayers can be heard. And not one of them is lost. And as nasty as, and as powerful as those locusts and horses and scorpions are, their power is as gnats compared to the power when God's people pray. And do you believe that? Richard Wormbrand um, has written a book, and you can get it for free if you just Google the book uh, Tortured for Christ. Tortured for Christ. He was tortured for Christ in communist Europe. Listen to what he says. He says, Western Christians can help us by praying for the persecutors that they may be saved. He wrote, we pray, he said, we did, we prayed, and they tortured us the next day even worse. And then he says this, any prayer that is not accepted by the one for whom you intercede returns to you with great blessings. Wow. That's powerful. Any prayer Any prayer that is not accepted by the one for whom you intercede returns to you with great blessings. I think that's why Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, he told his disciples to never pray. Don't give up. It's never pointless to pray again and again. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. And church family, that means, that means when we pray that, that means, God, may your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. See, these martyred saints are praying that before the Lord, but I don't think they just suddenly decided to pray that once they got to heaven. <laughs> See, they prayed in heaven because they've been prayed it on earth. Because in the midst of the bullies in their lives and their persecutors, God's will had been done in their hearts to the degree that they turned to him and they prayed. They prayed and he gave grace. He gave grace. Um, And the beauty of it is the God who makes the decision to make things right. See, the promise is that one day, it's going to happen, and I mean, this whole world is, in a flash, will be, become the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll receive new body. That, that's our promise. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, church family, we pray that his will is done, and, and every now and then, he acts, and we see a glimpse of that world to come. We see a glimpse of it to come. And so God makes a decision to make things right, and... Uh, and he acts. And so we pray. And some of you may be saying, yeah, but I mean, you know, that may work for you, but sometimes, but you know, come on, does it work every time? And the answer to that question is no, it doesn't. And that's what the text shows us in chapter 9, verses 19 uh, to uh, 21. Uh, I think that th- these are the saddest verses in this chapter, verses 20 and 21, where it says, After all of this, they still did not repent. See, And God is still holding back. Only a third were affected. How can an army of 200 million overcome and and then only a third be affected? It's because God's holding back. He's, he's, He's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But some are so addicted to their demons and idols, they will flat out refuse the only source of life, which means that some are not the repenting kind. And you know what? Timothy McVeigh was just like that. He went to his death. I, he quoted the poem, I am the captain of my soul. Wow. Church family, that's a signal. That's a sign. That's a sign. There's a trumpet blowing there. Are we listening? Some people are not the repenting kind. And and after 50 million years in hell, Satan and his followers will be no more repentant than they are today. So their punishment is deserved. They need judgment. And a good God does that. Because God has never punished someone who didn't deserve it. Well, except for one. Except for one. His own son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God judged his son who was innocent. He judged him guilty so that we who are guilty might stand before him clean. Why would we want to refuse that? 
You know, I was griping a little while ago about this AIG thing. But here's the deal. Listen. If people truly believed the gospel and what it actually says, many would be as scandalized as we all are about the AIG bonuses. (laughs) So the very people who have brought the busload of problems on themselves and the planet, these are the very ones who are offered grace, a bailout, a free bonus of grace. See? I mean, it's, it's a mercy enough that the likes of us, that the likes of us, arrogant, incompetent, and greedy, we should receive the bonus of grace. Who can understand it? I don't know that I do understand it, but I sure enjoy it. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, pardon me for for the liberty here, but the free bonus is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the free bonus that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Again, the free bonus of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the free bonus followed many trespasses and brought justification. That's a good God. Do you know him? If not, why not? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to, I'm going to pray. And then Katie's going to lead us in some more worship. Father God, thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you so much that you judged your son who was in fact innocent. He treated him as if he were guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared and treated innocent. Thank you. Thank you for making that decision. Because it means that through your son we can enjoy you forever. Father God in heaven, would you please give us the strength and the faith to live now, day by day, the way we're going to live in the new heavens and the new earth in new bodies. To the glory of Christ, amen.